Turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy, chapter 3. 1 Timothy, chapter 3. 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy constitute the last three epistles that the Lord gave to the Apostle Paul to write. Uh, they've been called the pastorals. And we have the order uh, of the churches given in these epistles, but we also have incredible spiritual truth that's given to us herein. And so we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 14 through 16, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Of course, as we read the Gospels, we realize that the Lord Jesus chose apostles. Twelve apostles. Of course, that's the number also of Old Covenant Israel, uh, but that is now also the number of New Covenant Israel, which constitutes, of course, Jew and Gentile in Christ. But the Lord chose 12 apostles. Those apostles were given a special commission and a special authority, being directly taught by the Lord Jesus Christ and sent by him. No other office since then no other office carried with it the authority to regulate and establish the government of the church. So we know that they are in a very unique sense in the foundation of the church. So we read in Ephesians 2 that we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Then when you read the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation and you find there the holy city, the new Jerusalem, it is made clear that that's not speaking in literal terms. The angel says, of course, to John the apostle that this is the bride of Christ. This is representative of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is representative of the true and eternal Zion, the Israel of God, the new Jerusalem. And in that chapter, chapter 21, verse 14, you have in the foundation of that holy city in which God dwells the names of the twelve apostles. They are in the foundation. They are foundational. We could, in a very real sense, call them the founding fathers. No other office since then 
has any authority outside of the particular local church to which one belongs. No church or power has any other power over another church. The only head of our church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, no office could carry with it the authority that was exercised by the apostles. No one, for instance, since apostolic times could, under Christ, say what the apostle Paul did. When he writes, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to the Corinthian church and they're coming with various questions for him and he's explaining the will of God to them and the order that should be established. And he says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, so ordain I in all churches. Only an apostle could say that. In the same epistle, chapter 14, verse 37, the apostle Paul says, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. So Paul, the apostle, had the authority under Christ, under the Lord Jesus Christ to write as he did. He has this authority to write to Timothy, this authority that shall govern the order of the churches and the offices of the churches. <coughs> Barry's interlinear, Greek-English interlinear, which is taken directly from the received text. It's not a translation we would read, but it uh, is in the same order as the Greek. Barry's translates, that thou mayest know how it behooves one in the house of God to conduct oneself. So it becomes incredibly important what the apostle is teaching, of course, in these epistles. He, of course, we learn in the first part of this chapter, the two offices, that of bishop, which means overseer, and uh, other places it is consistent with elder and with pastor. Peter, of course, put the three together, but he was not the only one, so did the apostle Paul. Peter says, the elders which are among you, I exhort, whom also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God. That's pastoral ministry. Feed the flock of God which is among you. Taking the oversight thereof, bishopric. So you have elder, pastor, bishop. You have it in other places as well. Of course, there's a difference among our good Baptist brethren as to how many elders or bishops and uh, deacons and so forth. There's not much controversy about deacons, but sometimes there's a difference of opinion about elders and some of our dear brethren. So, but the office of bishop is permanently established, of course, and has spiritual authority, but only within the confines of a local church. Only within the confines of a local church. And only two offices remain in the church. Those offices given in qualification in the first part here, 1 Timothy, being those of bishop, overseer, 
and deacon. Then, of course, there's also the evangelist, but that's not our scope in this particular message. Any claimed authority now outside the churches themselves, apart from what is committed for our governing in Scripture, now complete, any claimed authority outside of a local church is a dangerous usurpation of the headship that belongs only to the Lord Jesus Christ. He only sent his apostles with the authority to regulate the churches. He only sent his apostles with the authority to bind and loose that which would regulate his churches. You remember the Lord said that to Peter when, when Peter makes his great confession as the Lord had asked who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am. Peter, of course, answers, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. God had made that known to him. The Father revealed that to him. Isn't that amazing? He's in the presence of Christ, but Christ says the Father makes that known to you. Even the physical appearance of Christ did not display him as the Son of God. That comes by God's work, by his grace only. But the Lord Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, of course, that's in the widest sense indeed. But he goes on to tell Peter that whatever he binds will be bound in heaven and in earth. And then that extends to the other apostles when you get into the 18th chapter of Matthew. And as is historically verified, history tells us we learn from history, or we should, there began to be in the second century a claimed authority of bishops over multiple churches. And the departure, this departure from the apostolic and scriptural standard is what would lead to the arising of the man of sin eventually in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 who would usurp the position belonging only to the Lord Jesus Christ, claiming even to be his vicar and to be another god on earth. Actually, there are some creedal statements in Roman Catholicism that states that. And so <clears throat> that was the danger that would come eventually from this thought of a bishop being over many churches. But that's not the point of our study here. Just a point of education as far as historically. So in this study, we want to consider first that which is apostolically established, that which is established for us through the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, how that establishment now governs the conduct of the churches. And then thirdly, the authority to which we are to be solely subject. So, what about what the apostles established? It's very important that we understand the priority of what was established. 
the most important establishment brought about by the apostles. And the most important establishment is not the offices in the local church. That's important. It's not how many elders or deacons are in the church. That's not what is of supreme importance. There are good brethren who may differ on those things. But brethren can rejoice in each other and cooperate in getting the gospel out with each other if they all are agreed on this supreme importance set forth by the apostles. So what's first in priority and importance? The gospel. The very gospel itself. This was the first business of the apostles of Christ. This was their preeminent business. They were eye and ear witnesses of the incarnation of the very Son of God. They beheld His works. They heard His teaching. They saw His own conduct in the world, if you please. They were ear and eye witnesses of the Son of God incarnate. They were eyewitnesses, empirical witnesses of his resurrection from the dead. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 and 17, we have not made known to you uh, fables. He says, we beheld the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, writing in his first epistle, makes it clearly known that the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, did come actually in the flesh and that he actually was risen from the dead. When the Lord Jesus met with his apostles after he was risen from the dead and he met with those who were gathered in an upper chamber, he appears in their midst. They're afraid because what is this? They thought a spirit had appeared among them. He says in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. So John writes in his first epistle, he begins that epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Yes, they were chosen, commissioned, taught, experienced the living Christ, the risen Christ, and declared his gospel in a hostile nation and to a hostile world to the point of sealing their testimony with their own blood. It's through their word that we 
whom God is pleased to effectually call to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through their word that we have believed. And the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus, the eve before Calvary. The Lord Jesus prays in that great prayer, I pray for them, but not only for them, but for those who shall believe on me through their word. You see, they established the gospel. They are the establishers of the very gospel itself, the saving gospel of the Son of God. Of course, we can't help but read when we read the apostle born out of due time. We read Paul. You read his heart. You can't help but when you read the epistles of Paul, you read the heart of the, of the apostle. And his heart was for Christ. His heart was only for Christ. His heart for so was for Christ that he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he meant it. He meant it. When the time came for him to die, did he shriek from it? He welcomed it. There is laid it for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord hath given me. And it was going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't help but read his heart when you read Paul the Apostle. And the glorious gospel he proclaimed, he writes, he sets forth the gospel which centers in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Showing the way sinners are justified through faith in Christ alone, such a faith that God gives in regeneration, and the jealous defense of the gospel against any modification, any modification of that gospel whatsoever, the Apostle Paul shuns, warns about, grieves over. As he wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 1, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. They didn't quit preaching about Christ. They added to him. They added law works for salvation. And throughout that epistle, the apostle Paul refutes that error. In the earlier epistles of Paul, like Romans and Galatians. We have justification by faith through Christ alone as their chief topic. Just as Paul writes to the Romans and he says in verses, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. In Galatians 2.16, he writes to the Galatians, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. By the works of the law, no man is justified. In later epistles, Paul is concerned with setting forth the person of Christ. 
the person of Christ as God incarnate. And of course, that would be a refutation of errors that were already in process that would later be more further developed that denied the actual incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have Paul writing in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. As we studied, of course, last Wednesday evening in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, in him Christ, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you're complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. The Apostle Paul preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. He preached the gloriousness of the Son of God in whom God is made known. He proclaimed the gospel of a Christ who came, the Christ crucified for sinners. He preached the resurrection of the Son of God. He was one who also witnessed it, he says, out of due season. In Hebrews, there set forth the superiority and exclusivity of Christ over all that had gone before him, all now fulfilled in him. His high priestly office is set forth in all of its meaning. For us in Hebrews and the eternal efficacy of Christ's one sacrifice for sin he fulfills all so that epistle begins God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Thereafter all the superiority of Christ over everything that went before is taught us in Hebrews. Then, when Paul's last epistles are written, last in order, 1 Timothy, Titus, in 2 Timothy, when the governing of the church is set forth, the church is set forth as being the one medium that our Lord chose to uphold and dispense his gospel in the world. The church is called the pillar and ground of the truth. It, this truth of the gospel that is set forth so clearly. This truth of the gospel is to be upheld militantly by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel alone is to be proclaimed in the churches and through the churches to the world. This gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the pillar and ground of the truth, God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. 
Thus, we find that the establishment and the defense of the one gospel of the grace of God is the major theme of these epistles. Even as Paul in the first chapter exhorts that no man preach any other doctrine, which is a reference there to the gospel as God gave it through the apostles. You see, everything in a true church is to center in Christ. Everything centers in Christ, in the person of Him. It doesn't center in the pastor. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, ourselves your servants, for Jesus' sake. It doesn't center in the social work of the church. It centers in Christ. In Christ. And in Christ, and in walking with him comes the development of Christian character. So, then the apostles were concerned with the conduct of believers. Believers, believers who would be governed by the gospel. The gospel is to be our governing standard as well as that which we come to believe and we come to trust the Christ who is made known therein. Then that very gospel becomes our standard of conduct. It was the concern of the apostles that this standard of the gospel that the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and his supreme example would be set forth as the pattern of the believer's conduct. If you look back, for instance, just a few pages probably in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. And in verses... Verses 24 through 29, Colossians chapter 1. And the apostle writes, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known the glory, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. We are to live and conduct ourselves according to the gospel, as Paul would teach the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And we're taught about that. We're given the life of Christ. He that saith he abideth in him ought also to walk even as he walked. 
we learn in 1 John 2, 6. The apostle sets forth the greatness of the love commanded by Christ but demonstrated by him to which we are to follow as a pattern. So he writes in Ephesians 5, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Peter the Apostle writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, that we are to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're to follow his steps. He is our pattern. He is our pattern. It all comes from him. I give you a key of this mystery of godliness that we'll be dealing with Wednesday evening. <clears throat> The apostles drew to Christ only. Only to him. They taught that the very same faith by which we are justified then was also the very same faith that we're to make use of in our growth, never departing from it in our holiness. The very same faith. In Romans 5, the apostles stood being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So it becomes our business then not only to know our salvation in Christ but to grow in Him, to become stronger in Him, to walk with Him, to learn of Him, to seek His face, to come to know more and more of Him as we're taught in Scripture, to embrace the gloriousness of the love that comes to us by the Lord Jesus Christ and so wondrously displayed to us with the cross where he dies for our sins and the glory of the love that's manifested to us who are called by that gospel to come and believe, trust the Christ who died and rose again. The apostles were concerned with the gospel and then with the effect of the gospel on those who heard the word of God proclaimed through them. Then we find that the same concern is to attain in the ordering of the church. The ordering of the church. The church is the divinely ordained entity by which we are to learn to live with one another and testify to the saving gospel of the Son of God to the world. That thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The Lord puts us together. He puts us together so that we have converse with one another. He puts us together so that we may be useful to each other. He puts us together to teach us how to love. He puts us together so that we might become more and more one in Him, and which is a wondrous and glorious thing. He puts us together. Sometimes we might rub each other the wrong way. Well, that's a purpose in that too, so that we might learn patience, the patience of love. He teaches us 
how to love one another, to live in Christ and to live together in him. That can only be done in the church and the gathered assembly of the saints. Then <clears throat> it is by apostolic authority those sent directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, those who were taught specifically, personally, by him, those who are alone authorized by him, they are the ones who establish the government and the order of the churches to which believers are divinely joined. It's by the apostles, those we term the founding fathers, to those whose authority under Christ we are to be subject, that we find the order and the establishment to be maintained in the churches. We dealt a bit with Paul, not only Paul, all the apostles had that authority to establish the order. And so we hear, for instance, Peter in Second Peter Chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, when he writes this second epistle, Beloved, I now write unto thee in, in both, both the epistles, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the, uh, 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 the commandments, he goes on to say, of the apostles, of us, the apostles. So to bypass their authority to try and order the church by any social standard, any changing social standard which takes place now, or by any ecclesiastical authority outside the bounds of their teaching, it's treason against the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ gave no one any authority or group any authority over his churches other than the apostles. They order the life and the practice of the churches. And Christ gave to the apostle Paul to establish the offices, discipline, and order to be maintained in the churches. Gave that in these last three epistles that he wrote. 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. So how are we established by them? How are we governed? How do we know what conduct we are to engage in? By the word of God. By the word of God. When Paul says in 2 Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. It means everything is needed, nothing lacking whatsoever. We're truly furnished with the scriptures. There's to be no modification of what is taught therein, no changing of it whatsoever, not to fit any denominational scheme or anything else. We're to be subject to the word of God. 
Our Lord, in his word, including the now settled by the apostles, holy scriptures, completed. The canon complete is not only all we need, it's all we are now to hold as our sole authority for faith and practice. We are complete. We have everything we need in Holy Scripture. Any other authority, which also our Baptist forebears held firmly, any other authority constitutes a usurpation of authority, which is not authorized by our Lord. We're to love our brethren wherever they are. We're to cooperate in whatever way is meet for the progress of the gospel. But no preacher, preachers or church, has authority over any other church. Just interesting when the Sovereign Grace Baptist Fellowship was being formed. That was the major thing that was dealt with. There is no authority over a local church. This is not an authoritative thing that's taking place. It is a cooperative thing for the gospel, for the gospel of the Son of God, and to know and love our brethren, and to be a help to them whenever we can in other places. But no church has authority over another church. No pastor has authority over other pastors. It is a fellowship, not an authoritative thing that we engage in for the progress of the gospel. We're never to be moved from the scriptural standard. There are a lot of pressures in this day to be moved from it. There are pressures to move from the biblical standard in our day. And all the so-called churches that change to try and meet a worldly social standard We're to be aware of and to stand fast against such. It's amazing, of course, when I see buildings, churches that sometimes don't make it and someone else will come and they'll figure, we're going to do something great here and uh, we're going to fill this place up. And, and one that historically was a solid church at one time, solid in the faith, I walked by and I saw all the pews out in the out in the, the grass they're taking them out of the building they just weren't getting enough people by that means that old means and so they put theater chairs in and they put a stage in and they put all the lights and the whistles and the bells and they have great songs that draw and appeal to people same as you go to a movie theater or a play. Just adopt the worldly standards. This is moving from the standard that God gave. Preaching has fallen in disrepute in many churches. Preaching, which is central in the New Testament, the preaching of the gospel, the expounding, the declaring of the word of God, which is to be central in the churches, that's fallen into disrepute. 
Many pastors stand in the pulpit, they don't believe what they're saying. And they don't use the scriptures often except to read it and put it aside. They have a lot of good emotional stories they can tell. They have a lot of things that appeal to people's pride and the desires of their flesh. But the preaching of the word of God that strips us down sometimes and shows us bare before God in our sinfulness, that doesn't, that doesn't fit too well. And then brings us to a Christ who was crucified in no other way to the Father other than Him. That's not declared. Or if it is declared, it's put in such a condition that all of this appeal to the flesh takes precedence. And so, we're never to move from the biblical standard the scriptural standard, no matter the pressures of our day. And whenever a church leaves the sole authority of the scriptures and begins to make its own rules, or to submit to an unauthorized outside authority, eventually the gospel gets compromised. And then Christ our head Christ our head who sent his apostles and gave us his word is our ruling head. He alone is our ruling head. That's why when you look into these epistles that direct the order and the establishment of the church, we know that it is the word of our Lord, the word of God through them. The Lord gave the word. They published it. It was first to the apostles that which our Lord said applies in the highest sense to them. He that heareth you heareth me. And he that receiveth you receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. And it's only through the gospel they established that salvation comes. Through the gospel they establish and the only gospel that is to be proclaimed. To be subject to what our Lord ordained through them is to be subject to him. To be subject to the Lord. And that applies to offices, to pastor, to people. I am as subject to the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ as you are. I am as subject to the word of God as the sole authority for faith and practice as you are. Christ is our only head. He is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. He is ruling head. He is organic head. We live in him. So, 
importance of the church and of our being a part of it cannot be overestimated. It is so important that there's nothing else to take its place. But we remind ourselves that no one is a part of the true church but those who are regenerate, those who are begotten of God, those who know and have a relationship indeed with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those who've heard and believed the saving gospel of Christ, redeemed by him from sin and from the world. That's what we read together in Acts chapter 2 this morning. God saved those 3,000, later far more. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And the Lord, we're taught in that passage, added daily to the church those who were saved, saved by his grace. And when, by the sovereign grace of God, one is brought truly to Christ, who comes truly to look to him and trust in him and be given up by faith to him, there to follow him, there to follow him, to follow in baptism, to become an active part of his church, and to walk with him. We who are saved by God's grace do not belong to ourselves. We belong to him who died and rose again. We're no longer our own. We belong to the one who came into this world to save such sinners. And I can't get over that. I can't get over it. I'm amazed to this day that Christ would come into this world to save such a sinner as me. I find that amazing. Amazing grace indeed. Do you know him? Do you know who he is? Do you know why he came? Is there anything in this world or anyone that means more to you than him? May God search our hearts and draw to himself to look to him alone, to recognize we're bought with the blood of the Son of God. We were who slaves to sin slaves to self have been liberated by him. The son who makes us free to belong to him and to him only. If someone has a hymn, we'll be glad to accommodate. <clears throat>